You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello, I'm James O'Brien. Welcome to episode 22 of Unfiltered, featuring Richard Herring. He's on the road now with his latest stage show, Oh Frig, I'm 50. That brings him into the sort of 13 or 14 one-man show territories. But we'll look back at the Lee and Herring stuff and everything he did before, of course, becoming one of the first people to appreciate the power that podcasts would hold. Welcome. Thank and you. Thank you. Here. It's lovely to have you here. The way it works is is we sort of we roam very sure. aimlessly throughout throughout your back catalogue <laughs> and your personal life up to a point and your professional achievements, winding up with the latest tour, the latest one man show, about your eighteenth or nineteenth, I think. Um, well, it's it's I think they're probably thirteenth um, show, but then I've done a couple of them a couple of times. I've, right, I've toured right. every year since, apart from two thousand, pretty much. You, you've also said that eighty percent of the stuff you do is for free. This, this in the context of, of explaining that over the last five or six years, you've been working pretty much seven days a week. So. I mean, have you fired your agent yet? How does that <laughs> but, work? But, that is, but it's by choice. And I think most of the things that I was doing for free have started to pay off now. Right. And they, and they pay off in different ways anyway. So I kind of really... I've just sort of... About 10 years ago, um, we sort of... Well, I, I, I was sort of aware of the internet all the time, really. You know, in the, yes. the mid-90s, me and Stu, would, well, they had a website and we did quite a lot, even with the TV show. We had an email address, which was quite unusual, and you know, people could get involved. <laughs> And we we liked that, and even before the internet, though those shows were quite internety, and that they were people got involved and contributed to them. And so I was kind of always aware that there was this, you know, new territory that you could go into. And I think well, I started writing a blog fifteen years ago, mm. and I did that partly just as a way of getting over writer's block. And then I realised, you know, if something's going up every day on a website, then people are coming to your website every day, so that's not a bad thing. And hopefully then they'll come and see you do some shows. Yes. And then with podcasting, it was just sort of the realisation that you could be, you could have the autonomy, have as a stand-up, you know, what I love about stand-up. Uh, and I came back to stand-up quite late, really, but what I love about it is that, you know, you have an idea and you put it on and then you go and do it. So all my one-man shows are completely self-generated uh, and no one tells you what I can and can't do. Which obviously you felt too many people were doing too much. Well, it's just so difficult, and it still is, to get things on TV and radio, and I have a fair degree of success compared to most people about getting stuff on TV and radio, but But I felt like I had a lot of ideas, and most of them were just disappearing into the ether, so just the idea of being able to... The thing that appealed to me about podcasts was just the idea of being able to make whatever you wanted to make, and I didn't really care about anything else. And early on, people were going, but you're not going to make any money, and you go, well, it doesn't... You know, what matters is the the work yes and if the work's good then presumably that will lead to other things it's but it's quite you, a leap of faith though you had your fingers crossed a little bit well i just presumably. thought I, I just all the everything i've done on the internet i've just thought i'm doing this for the sake of doing it i'm not doing this you know I'm as may, an end in itself yeah maybe like when we first did Collins and Herring, maybe we'd done a radio show and then stopped then we did a podcast and maybe at the back of our minds we thought hey if someone likes this maybe they'll give us a radio show back yes, you know yes. but that was that was it and then we quickly realized and we did get our radio show back in fact we got got ready for we did a radio show for a year but we quickly realized there was value in it elsewhere and especially for me because I was touring and so if you're going into people's ears every week with a you know and making them laugh and it's free then every now you know most people are going to go oh well you know hey he's coming to our town let's go and see him and b I feel a bit guilty about these 50 hours of free entertainment you know? so you course. know we'll give him a pound or we'll buy him a cup of coffee or <laughs> so you know it does it it's, sort of, it's it like does, the big issue of the comedy <laughs> world <laughs> but it's but I suddenly realized you know and unintentionally it was a kind of brilliant yes. business model because I'm not a businessman but I noticed my tour audiences were dub, you know doubled within two or three years and I mean you say unintentionally but you were way ahead of the game on that because it's taken me quite I mean probably this actually doing this podcast it mm. took me to realize 15 years after you started that the whole nature of uh, i mean we have to use this language until someone comes up with better words content delivery and all yeah. that sort of thing it really is changing people listening to this will be surprised to learn that someone like you you know a, a household name among the most successful comedians of your generation still felt straight jacketed by broadcasters they will presume you turn up you see someone selling out big venues or someone who's really doing the business and then the tv people just say oh come and do whatever you want on our station i mean no i mean it's really hard <laughs> you know it's really hard even when we were on you know me and Stu did tv for four or five years and we'd done radio we worked together for 10 13 years something like that and um 
you know, it was still, even though we were on TV, it was a struggle to stay on and we nearly went off and then we came and stayed on and, you know, it, it, and the regime changed and I've still got that. You know, I've just, I've written a sitcom I'm very pleased with and we did a taste of tape of it and it was really good. And then everyone at the, the broadcaster changed to different yeah, people. And then, you know, you go in and have a terrible meeting with them and go, oh, well, that three years of work has gone down the toilet. So, you know, not necessarily, hopefully someone else might do it, but it is... You know, you you do. I, I think when I was doing, I was doing the podcast, and I started doing as it occurs to me, which was like a stand-up and sketch yes. weekly thing, and that kind of w- was about the same time. I, you know, I think I might have even pitched that as a radio show, and then I just realised it was just the time when all the Saxgate thing had broken with Russell Brand and Jonathan mm. Ross, and the BBC were being so overcautious. Right. And you sort of think, I've got this, I've got this place I can go and do whatever I want to do. And you know, the whole thing with as it occurs to me, you come with is, I can be as rude as I like. And you go for two weeks, you're just going terrible, you know, going insane. And then you go, yeah, that's just no fun. If you can, if you're allowed to do it, it's no fun. So you know, you go back and it settles down into its own rhythm. But that freedom and that autonomy, I, you know, because I think what's weird to me is uh, increasingly, and I think maybe it didn't used to happen so much on TV. And the things that are successful on TV, I think, almost nearly always break this, is that an executive will see someone they like and then take a leap of faith for them and go yes. I like you and you obviously know what you're doing yes. so you go and do it whereas now increasingly you'll have an idea and they'll go would it be better if this this, or if it was this, a bit like that yeah, other yeah, thing exactly, that's done exactly. really well and so you go you know I've been writing scripts for the you know there was, I got the notes I got back up my latest thing was going this is a bit hack and this is a bit hack and you go Ooh. I've been doing comedy for 30 years okay I go out every night and I do comedy I know what's hack if there's something in there that you think is hack you either haven't got the joke or yes. you don't understand why it's in there yes uh, but don't you know? I wouldn't presume to go into someone it's a, <laughs> a doctor and working for thirty years. And go, would it be better if you uh, <laughs> if you cured this disease? <laughs> you don't want to do it by like doing that. you know. But that's <laughs> that's increasing how the so it just seems to me counterintuitive. It shouldn't you know? You find people you like and then take a chance with them, and that I think that's where all the the great stuff is. You know, Monty Python they seem to be just left to themselves. Yes, Armando Iannucci leave him to himself, and he'll come up with something great. Uh, I was talking to Mackenzie Crook on my podcast the other week, and you know, with Detectors, he just went Very in with this idea, so. and they just yes. went, "Hey, we love this. Let's you know go and do it. We trust you to do it." And I think you sort of have to do that to to create really groundbreaking good comedy. Let's let's go back to the beginning. I'm, okay. I'm intrigued that you were you, you were born in Pocklington yeah. in Yorkshire. I was at school in Ampleforth just 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 round the corner How effectively. Yes, I was. Well, but I don't I, remember much about it. We left very early, but my dad was a teacher in uh, Pocklington. At Pocklington school, school. Yeah, yeah. and then you ended up at the school where he was headmaster. Yeah, but that was in Cheddar. So we, yeah, we, so we moved down. School. That was a comprehensive school in Cheddar, but a very nice school. Well, yeah, I ended is, up. Is there, I know you've, you've, you've mused on this in the past yourself, but I, uh, if you have quite an anti-authoritarian streak and your dad's a headmaster, it, it, you probably don't have to be Freud. <laughs> do you? Well, I think it's weird because I was, you know, I did the show Headmaster Son, which yes, was about exactly. trying to work out whether it affected me or not. And I think it definitely did affect me. Um, but I was at school. I was, you know, we, I was into comedy and I was into subversive comedy. But I was a very good. What sort of good, stuff? I loved like Pete and Dud and Monty Python, Young Ones. It was all that sort of stuff. So you know, and getting, and I was getting hold of a lot of the stuff on records. Like everyone else was listening to music. My friends yeah. were into punk, and I was a little bit into punk. But I was just, you know, a, a Pete and Dud thing dropped into your lap, and yes. you know, you couldn't believe. I don't know how I got away with listening to it at thirteen or fourteen, no, and, and, and how my parents alone. obviously didn't know what didn't was going. Appreciate they were like, nice Pete and Dud. It's not a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so you left off, you know, doing this stuff. So you know, I loved all that stuff. So it was a subversive in terms of I loved comedy that was subversive. But I were um, and I was naughty in that I was cheeky in lessons and trying to be funny all the time. I was a group of friends who had always trying to be funny and we did student comedy and student magazines that were again a little bit subversive but we were sort of really good as well and right. I, was, I was trying to get to university and I was clever and I was doing, getting good exam results but you, you already um, had the, the performer thing yeah I think so on. but I think all of it came all of it predates anything to do with my dad though so I think you know like I look at my I realised at about four or five I was kind of obsessed with you know this mysterious thing of sex without knowing too much about what it was, but have what even what I gleaned at five, I found was obsessed with it, and nudity and swear, you know, saying poo and wee yes, and stuff, yes, which yes, my taboo. daughter's just getting into. But just like that was exciting to me. But I was also uh, really into funny anything that was funny. I loved, I loved writing stories. You know, it was all kind of in, innate in there. Really, I think it was inside me. And did you always know then that that it was potentially something you could do for a living? No, no. I, I think I wanted to, and that was the dream. You know, you watch these people and you dreamt that you could do that but like as a Somerset schoolboy with no grounding in showbiz I remember going to uh, my careers at officers meeting and you know and saying what I'd like to be a writer or an actor 
And he's going, well, you know, those aren't on the form. You can't do those. No you, can work, you should work in a bank. <laughs> or, you know, or you're not going to be able to do it because it, it wasn't a realistic uh, avenue. Even then, you know, even when we started, really, you know, it wasn't comedy wasn't something people went into as a living, you know. Was, no. Uh, there'd be a very few people who'd got TV shows and might be successful in that way but it wasn't like oh and now it is because it's such an industry and now people can go oh if i go into this i i could be michael McIntyre and earn a million pounds a night or whatever you know so i think that people look at it differently but they, and you know they don't, they don't who miss. were the trailblazers for you then who's inspired you because Badil's done this podcast yeah and, and um he's slightly older than you yeah and they, they, they kind of invented rock and roll comedy yes. as it were yeah. so that presumably threw open some sort it of did. I mean, internal they were, door we were sort of just a couple of years behind yes. them and with the same management as them and it wasn't it was probably unhelpful to us because yeah, I think course. people just thought oh they're you know they're trying to we weren't massive I love David and you know, I think he's a, I'd seen his stand up and you know I'd seen bits and pieces of Newman and Badil uh, and it was in pieces wasn't it but uh, sure. but uh, it was, you know, they weren't they weren't like a big influence on us. We, I, I was, I think me and Stu came from very different sensibilities, but very similar sense of humour. How did you uh, meet? We met at university, so we were met in the first term at university, and I think again, everyone else was. We met sort of at the comedy club. We sort of missed each other a few times, and then we sort of met at a party, and we both sort of disliked everything else everyone was doing. <laughs> And we both had done quite weird things in the first term that right. we hadn't seen, but we'd heard of. And on stage, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> only on stage, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. uh, and so he'd, he'd done a sketch about people standing at a bus stop with fruit, and I, you know, all I'd heard was everyone going this weird sketch, and I'd done a sketch about having a singing penis. Uh, so it probably sums the two of us up and we both kind of felt we had something we had the same sense of humour but a very different way of coming at it and I think throughout everything we were doing that was the case as well in that I was I had I, I loved all those sort of sketch comedians I loved the group comedy I loved young, the young ones and but also you know I was very in, and you like collaborating I did I, you know so it, was, it took me a long time to become a solo comedian because yes. I didn't think I had a kind of weird awful time in Edinburgh when we went up we were in the Oxford Review and we went up in 1988 and it was just at the point where stand-up comedy was massively in the ascendant. Student comedy was in the in the gutter, right. and they kicked us in the gutter. You Did know, they really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a horrible time, uh, and really sort of bullied. I understand why. By the audiences? No, by the other comedians. By right. the stand-up, the stand-up comedians, you know, hated well, the uh, perceived privilege and the fact that we'd all get on. And this is interesting because David again, David Badil was saying that for, for that generation, which you're part of, five years previously, Footlights and the Oxford. Um, review were, were pretty much golden tickets. Yeah. And five years later, they sort of became golden tickets again. So bit, you're, yeah. you're jumping from Fry, F F Fry and Emma Thompson yeah. and Hugh Laurie to probably Robert Webb and David Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, and then in the middle, people who actually you were from quite a humble background. If your father yeah. was a comprehensive school headmaster, it's not like, you know, silver spoon territory. No. But you were perceived as being well. We represented, and I understand that we represented the past privilege of yes. you know. And it's unfair, still, you know, oh yeah, and everyone. I think the pianist went to public school, but all the five performers in the in the show were from comprehensive schools. And yeah, and so you know, and, and that was it. Annoyed me because I felt like what you want to do is get to a point where the nice, the posh universities and the good universities are open to everyone. Sure. And so you don't want to have them perceived as being these privileged places. You want them to be perceived as a place where you can get to if you work hard. Which you know we had to all of, of that work yes. to get and we're very proud to. to get there and then but then as a comedian you sort of had to be a, ashamed of it and Stu sort of sided with you know not sided with him but he realised he wanted to do stand up and I was still I was still pushing I want to do sketches you know I believe okay. sketches I, you know I didn't like the stand ups because I didn't Why feel not? I was going to be well uh, partly because of this experience you know I didn't yeah. think I was going to be accepted I didn't feel like a solo performer um, and I always felt I did better with other people. And I was, you know, I did better in sketches. I was sort of perceived as the performer at university. I was in the Oxford Review. I did lots of acting. So that, it, that it just, and I, you know, I think a bit like David Mitchell. David Mitchell's never gone into doing stand-up. He would no. be an amazing stand-up if he wanted to do it. But I think he, it was a, it, it's a baptism of fire stand-up. You know, it's a difficult thing to do. And especially coming from a different background, I did stand-up for two or three years. So you can hide behind the singing penis yeah, or a sketch. Or... And yeah, or an accent or a character. And I was, okay. when I did stand-up to begin with, I was sort of veering between characters and myself right. and trying to please myself and trying to please the people who were booking. And I never quite, sometimes I do well, sometimes I do really badly. And then, you know, the, the double act stuff started taking off and the writing started taking off. So I kind of dumped the, the stand-up. Were you analysing it to this degree at the time? Yeah, yeah. No, really? Yeah. That's it was quite very, it was rare. 
Well, we were very, you know, we were very into, I was just into comedy in a way that, other, and I'm not into music. I, right. I listen to music now and I enjoy music more than I used to, but it didn't, I, I sort of disliked music because I felt it, I mean, I suppose comedy does well and any taste in anything does, but it, it, it seemed to me to divide people, you know, someone would say, I like Phil Collins yeah, yeah. and I like the Sex Pistols, so we can never be friends yes, and you kind yes. of go, that's, I mean, it possibly is a good way of discovering whether whether you're, you're compatible, but also, you know, it seemed weird as a, the way that cliques were formed at school, and I kind of didn't like that. Though I'm sure, you know, I would probably have been as snotty as if someone had said they liked uh, Last of the Summer Wine, <laughs> an unlikely event. Uh, you know, I would have said, well, I like the young ones. Um, it was good. Were you, were you, so so the, it almost like you had a plan already. Or not? I mean, I think a little bit. We sort of, you know, I'd read this book from Fringe to Flying Circus, so all my heroes were Monty Python and you know Rowan Atkinson, and you know yes. to let uh, to it, not in this book, but the young ones they'd gone, gone to Manchester, but all these people have gone to university, done student comedy, and then yeah. gone to London and done stuff. So, so you I knew had there was a part. I had that plan, but I went to university thinking oh, there's no way. You know, I was just thinking the Oxford View is this, you know, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, yeah, yeah. Rowan Atkinson, it's this revered thing. I'll never get in. Um, and it's, you know, it is so fragile because, like, I, I remember doing... I did that singing penis sketch at the the fortnightly club and the... <laughs> and the I remember just some of the other comedians from the year above sitting in the front row going, oh, well, you know, I could hear them commenting on it, you know, going, what's this? Oh, well, what's all this about? You know, and you just think... It's so fragile because if that had just broken and everyone going, oh, that's that terrible guy who does that terrible singing penis thing. Yes. Uh, but because it kind of resonated with some other people, it was okay. Uh, and, yeah, and we sort of just suddenly were, did really well, you know. So we went... We went we formed this little sketch troupe together and it, it, we sort of did the weekly shows, which we were very lucky had just started up this fortnightly shows. And every week we sort of stormed it with a new, we'd write new material every week uh, and we'd write four or five sketches. And then we sort of, we nearly became the Oxford Review that year. And then instead they gave us a, a separate show at right. lunchtime, which was a bit of a sort of, damn squib sure. but it meant then we went back to university the next term and we went direct from the Edinburgh Fringe boom and we just were this phenomenon it was like insane you know so they, no one was, was it only called? A, it was called the, we called the Seven Raymonds we were called because it was the idea that like it, you know the two Ronnies had got together yeah. but there were seven people called Raymond and they'd all got together <laughs> but like no one was called Raymond and there were six of us so it was all it was loads of terrible jokes in there but um, you rocked it but it just went insane you know and so we were just the stars of the Seriously? university scene yeah yeah but it was we did. it was like I'm you know, guessing a tiny like hundred seated room probably but we did five nights and they just sold out and it was standing you know people standing and going so you were sort of famous on yeah, campus yeah yeah I mean college. just very quickly you know in that I mean it sort of built quite quickly in that yeah, the couple of terms before we went away but when we came back from because none of the freshers knew that that meant nothing that we'd been to the Edinburgh Fringe so and we've been to the Edinburgh and five people had seen us every morning every lunchtime but your back is conquering heroes yeah yeah and so you know so it was so we had this great you know we had a lovely time where we had three years to experiment with comedy and there was a little bit of a taste of the real world that year I went to Edinburgh yeah. and got kicked kicked down and nearly, you know, nearly gave up, to be honest. It was so bad. What would you have done if you had? I presume I'd have been a teacher because that's what everyone else, and near everyone else in my family is a teacher. And you know, it's, there's similarities. Of course there are. <laughs> but, uh, of course there are. Uh, but I'm glad, you know, I'm glad I, had, I didn't go that way. So when did you first get handed a, a, a packet of cash? Or a- well, I remember we got paid quite quickly for doing like a just the, we did it. The five of us at college, and we got fifty quid, so we got ten pounds each. And I genuinely couldn't believe. It was like probably within a couple of months of us forming this group, we had to do half an hour of comedy and they gave me £10. And I just, I nearly framed it, genuinely. I didn't spend it because I didn't have any money. And then, you know, I think like in Edinburgh, we got like invited to play in a bar and it was a similar sort of thing. Yeah. Like we came to sketches in a bar and like at lunchtime in a pub doing stupid students sketches and uh you know again they gave us free food and 10 pounds each or something like that and i just couldn't it just was unbelievable so that was the idea that anyone would pay us for doing this was was insane but yeah that came quite quite quickly in those terms so as a student that was quite helpful yeah. if, you know every weekend you're earning a little bit of a little bit of money um but it was mainly doing free free gigs so and, so. and then as, as graduation approaches and you are obviously you've decided to give I mean, together you decided you. Yeah, I mean, decide. I think together we'll try and. I mean, Stu different was, world now, isn't it? For younger people listening yeah. to this, the idea that you could have actually given yourself a year or two to see if it happened yeah, or yeah. not, they will find very hard to believe. Well, listen, they and come to London, can't eat if they. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we say let's go to London and yes. live in like in the cheapest place we can live and have no money and eat yes. baked potatoes. But even so, you know, my rent was. And you'd shed the other Raymonds by this point. Yeah, they were. They was. They're all our friends, but they they weren't. We weren't working together. Um, but yeah, me and Stu came and we shared a flat with. Well, actually, one of the other Raymonds was yes. in the was in the house. It was in Acton, um, 
and I think we paid sixty pounds a week each for you know, like a room in this house. So you know that was achievable. And there were things like enterprise. I got on the enterprise allowance quite quickly, and that paid your that basically paid you forty pounds a week and anything you earned you could keep. And I yeah. think you still got your house, your, your money for your rent. So I had a couple of years where you really helped it through. Mm. But yeah, we just I basically decided let's do five years and see where we are in five years. What did your dad think? They were quite supportive, but I think because my brother's a bit older than me and he's about six years older than me, and he'd really wanted to be quite a serious writer, you know, yeah. he's quite a poet, and they'd sort of dissuaded him from doing it because they wanted him to settle down and be of sensible. Course. And uh, and then it didn't, that made him more upset, obviously. And I think they realised that you just got to let, see what happens, you know, yes. let people have a go and stuff. Yes. And I think being the younger one, it just helped, it just helped out having that, you know, bit more freedom. You're not quite, you're not quite as, uh, responsible are you when you're the youngest one so they they and just and also just at being a bit you know being it being the 1980s rather than the 1970s i think it made a difference yeah. the world had moved on a little bit and it felt like this wasn't a ridiculous they were they were nervous about it i think sure but they felt it was achievable yeah i mean they so thought they they'd, they'd seen your stuff and they thought you were quite good as well <laughs> they'd right? seen it and uh, i don't know if they thought it was good but i think they i think they just realized i wanted to do it and they were going to let me you know and they were supportive and they they you know they when i bought my first flat again when, when it was possible to do yeah. i was we were just we were just about to do a tv series so i knew i could pay them back but they lent me 10 grand right we weren't i mean we weren't even get we weren't getting paid very much for the tv series but i knew i could pay them back pretty sure. quickly um and so that just that was just my down that was my deposit on the flat imagine being able to put ten thousand pounds down on a flat and then still right. be able to afford a mortgage um so you know it was they were yeah they did they were i like, I like the idea that they had faith in you though that's nice There's yeah a, i saw nigel haver speaking recently about jack whitehall right he's his godfather right and he went to see him above a pub in Hampstead or yeah. something shortly after he left school i think you might have to find something else. <laughs> <laughs> not sure, not sure this is going to work for you, Jacko. <laughs> so you do. It take, takes a little bit of confidence. And when you and Stuart started, I mean, we you did the normal circuit, presumably. Yeah, we did the standard circuit, and like Stuart, you know. So I we, again coming at it from slightly different angles. I yeah. knew all about like the Radio Four and uh, weekending and stuff. Well, my brother's friend at school coincidentally had been through all the weekending thing, and I think wasn't doing it anymore. But I knew all that existed. Um, and Stuart really kind of got to grips with what where the stand-up circuit was and was very... I mean, was he was just focused on that, really. The, the, the stuff we did together was like a sideline oh, okay. for him. <clears throat> he always wanted to be, you know, to do what he's doing now, which is which is good. But, you know, he was always working along parallel. I, yes. was, I was really pushing everything into the right. double act through the 90s, which made the kind of transition a little bit difficult. Tougher for you. Yeah, because for I didn't really have any... I, you know, I, I was the... Why do you think that was? Because I decided to be part of a double act, but what I did in the double act wouldn't work outside of... No, but, but also personality-wise, why do you think that um, was? Well, you know, he was very... He was, he's very... Um, driven in himself and he was well, not and coming he, across as lackadaisical yourself no, I'm not, but, but, I, but I, I i am much more of a you know i i, I like the idea of comedy as a community and doing yes. stuff with other people and he was and, and you know and a lot of stand-ups are, are, are entirely autonomous and can't of work course. with other people and Stu can work with other people and is you know is giving and all those sort of things but he but he you know he knew what he wanted and what he really wanted was to be what he is now which is fantastic and, know, and, and everybody has a sort of yeah. favorite gear yeah. Yours is different yes. from his. Yeah. So, you know, it was it was so because I'd invested in the double A, it was when we stopped doing the double A, it was it was like a couple of years of oh, you know, we'll slow down. What what does we've only just we've only just got what, the double what, A off the ground. Yeah, but where I'm do sure. I go? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So I want to start. Um so then you started collaborating with people like Chris Morris, you worked on On the Hour. Yeah. Were you working on that together, you and Stuart? Me and Stuart were yeah, we wrote so about you worked as a you wrote as a double. Yeah, as we a pair. yeah. So we wrote we went we we were doing the stand up circuit separately. Right, and we were going to the radio for and writing for Weekending, which we neither of us really liked, but we it was a good place to meet producers. Yes, of course. And, and we why met. didn't you like it because it's a bit production line? Well, it was just not our sense of humour, and it was you know it's quite this, arch, yeah, news, yeah. news based, very, yeah, and very... just I'm a bit you know, and a bit hack. It was uh, generally okay. a bit like you know we did when we did on the hour, we wrote a sketch about someone it, going to a Weekending style, course, yes, of thing course. And, you don't and, register, do you? But that is in many ways, it's <laughs> taking the piss out yeah. of precisely yeah. the things you've just said about Weekending. So, but, but we did Weekending and. And it was really good to do it because a it it was a way of you had to write stuff quickly, you had to write things succinctly, you had to get you know you had best chance to get a twenty second sketch on. That wasn't our yeah, yeah, yeah. natural thing. You know we like to write ten minute sketches, but they were never going to get onto onto weekending. Uh, and then it also gave you an idea. You know you would have a one producer would come on and use 
well, one we had Harry Thompson uh, who, did, who did it one week, and he used twelve minutes of material from me and Street, which was unheard of. Like this big room of writers, and we wrote over half the show, right. <laughs> and that was insane. But that had followed eight weeks with Diane Messias as a producer who'd used one twenty-second sketch. Still remember the name? Yep. Uh, and, <laughs> so you know, but that was a that was a difficult eight weeks because yeah, I was relying a lot on that. You know, and you only get, get paid for what's used. Yeah, you only get well. We get you get of. you get twenty pound commission if you got to be a commissioned writer. So you got one minute maybe. Right. We might have had to split that. It might be twenty pounds each. But every every minute we got extra, we'd get twenty pounds between the two of us. Gosh. So yes. you know, it was the, the, it was between what you got to eat or drink at yeah, the end yeah, of the yeah. week. Yeah. Um. So, but you know, we met. Um, I mean, we, Armando did it, and we did know Armando. What was be- he there as a producer? He was a producer, yeah. Okay. So he went. We've he's, known him. he's done this as well, and quite unintentionally. There've been quite a lot of um, dovetailings yeah. in all of the unfiltered. Not all of it, obviously. <laughs> you, you probably haven't got much in common with the female genital mutilation campaign <laughs> in Nimco Alley. Although, if we <laughs> keep talking for long enough, we'll find some connections. Because he felt, and this has been a little bit missing from what you've told me so far. He kind of felt almost blessed that he suddenly after coming down from Scotland found himself working at BBC London it would have been with um, Steve Coogan and Chris Morris and people like that whereas with you there's more of a sense of it being the result of effort rather than a kind of magic wand moment you you, you yeah I mean we we all happen pretty fast you know so we you know the the I mean all the things that those stand-up comedians said about Oxford Sort of is slightly true. We yes. you know, we met Armando and Sarah Smith, who did our producing for a few years. We didn't really know her at Oxford. She was a bit sure. a couple of years ahead of us, but you know, I don't think that hurt. No. But actually, what the thing that cemented us to them was doing week. Both of them did weekending, and both of them really liked what we were writing for weekending. So Got it wasn't you. actually. Sure. You know, we probably came from a similar sensibility, which doesn't. Yes. You know, which is the reason show business is how it is, yes. and maybe it will change. Uh, but um, you know, Armando produced weekending. And we really fitted in with what he was trying to do. And so he said, you know, I'm doing this other show that's, which he even tried to do in a little bit in Weekend. He tried to make Weekending a bit different and, you know, to an extent succeeded. Uh, And he said, will you come and help on this other show? And he, I mean, Armando is, you know, that's where his genius was. He spotted all the people he spotted for that show (laughs) have come on to be in some way. It's actually unbelievable. And he was, you know, pretty much the first person to spot it. So even Steve Coogan, Steve had done a bit of telly and he'd been doing, you know, he was just doing a WH Smith advert where he was doing Frank Spencer and all that sort of stuff. Spitting image voices. Yeah, spitting image voices, of course. So he was, you know, he was rich and well, you know, he was doing, when when we worked, well, when we worked with him, You'd go to his flat and there'd be cheques lying around that he hadn't sent to the bank, you know, and me and Stu would go... He'd left those out just before <laughs> just before you arrived. He'd run around putting them yeah, on the sideboard. Yeah. you go, but this is from five months ago. You know, me and... I don't know, especially me, because Stu was earning a bit of money from stand-up. I was earning a bit of pittance from yeah. writing for the radio. And so seeing someone, you know, he was making advert money, sure, he was making TV money. big. But especially was, then as well, yeah, it yeah, was really yeah. astonishing. But he was doing very main, you know, and speaking yes. images a bit less so, but he was doing, he could easily have gone Bobby Davro yeah, okay. or Michael Barrymore. Yeah. Uh, but Armando saw him and spotted something God, be- I didn't know that. bigger in, the, in yeah. than that. And, you know, put him in on the air. And Chris Morris, again, it's not a difficult thing to spot what Chris Morris was doing at Radio Bristol was interesting and great. But Armando said, yes, that will work in this framework. So he's like an I'm alchemist, doing. isn't yeah, he? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, but then Rebecca front Dune McEakin um, David Schneider I mean all these people and, the, and Stephen Wells was one of the writers David Quantic was one of the writers you know all these people who are and you know it was me and Stu's first main job um, and so yeah it was this incredible Patrick Marber as well I can't mustn't forget him is, uh, it, is and, it true that you still dispute the origin of Peter O'Hanra Hanra Hanra oh, well, Hanra, def- Hanra that's definitely true I mean that was with so, Patrick so, Marber you so both what, claim well what it. happened well, that was interesting and that was because we ended up splitting from on the hour when it went to day day and it was massive for me because this was we were about to get like a 13 and I remember it was a 13 minute TV commission between the two of us so six minutes of TV each and I can't remember what the figure was but yeah. you know it wasn't 20 pounds a minute sure so this was this was life-changing money yes. for me and also I knew that this show was going to be Monty Python of the 1990s you know you knew that this was it um, and we got into a sort of dispute from a manager as, uh, about ownership of characters uh, and whether we would be you know yeah and so if it, and he was right and he was like they were all so keen to go to the BBC they weren't deciding who owned what and blah sure. blah blah and so like if our manager had got his way and we'd been in that show and part of that deal had been you own 1% of Alan Partridge yeah. 
then the rest of my life would have been very different. And not necessarily in a good way, but he was right sure. to make those. Dis- he was right to make that distinction. But it was a massive. I don't understand why you had to separate though. Well, because, because you and Stuart because had got we, this they, other offer. They wouldn't give us ownership of the characters we felt we'd co-created. And it was partly because on the hours, I mean, it's convoluted. On the hours, oh, written in a way where we. We would come up with ideas, and then the cast would go and improvise. Them. Oh, I see. So, who actually came up with so, that? So, yeah. So, the Peter Hanran. You'd be is, nothing is, without me. Well, it, you'd be nothing without yeah, well, me. Peter Hanran's very Peter uh, interesting, Hanran, and it's it's a very um, Lee and Herring yes. premise. Yes, uh, it is. Uh, and what I, I can tell you how it started, uh, where it came from. Is it still disputed. I was. I, was no, I don't think anyone would dispute this, but this is where this this story shows where it's interesting. I was in bed. Listen to Radio 4 yes. on the morning the Maastricht Treaty was printed. Blimey, yeah. And it was the morning the Maastricht Treaty, yeah. this massive yeah. thing. And the Radio 4 said to the reporter, so what's in the Maastricht Treaty? And this guy goes, well... <laughs> and he does, he does the whole thing. 297 pages. Yeah. And he's, try, <laughs> he's, trying to, uh, he's trying to get his way through this. So I went into the office and I said, this is brilliant. The, the, you know, a, a thing where the reporter clearly yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. know anything about it and has to completely waffle his way through it and blah, blah, blah. And, and gets challenged and still has to fight. And they went, great. And then they went away and improvised that. I know it might have even about been about the Maastricht Treat, the first one. And it was on pick of the it was picked out of the show and it was on pick of the week. And I thought, I heard it went and brilliant. And they said, that sketch written by Amanda Yanucci and Patrick Marver. And I kind of went in the next day and said, um, you know, why was I why was I not given a credit on the yeah. thing? And I said, Well, you just heard it on the radio. And you kind of go, that is the entire premise yeah. of this entire thing. So it wasn't in any way um you know, everyone was working so hard at it. It didn't, didn't matter. And it really didn't matter at that stage. But that was sort of, that so was precedent. basically the seed that was okay. going to grow. You know, and I remember thinking, well, that's a bit rich and it's a bit unfair. And like, it became like they were going away and getting winning writing awards for it. And someone would go, oh, well done on your, you know, we meet a producer and they go, well done. On, you know what? Congratulations. You're a bit you younger than them. A little, a little bit. bit, yeah. And, and you know, if we, you'd been on, if you'd been on the performing roster rather than just the writing roster, would you have processed it differently? I think it would have been a different thing. So what was quite interesting about it was that um, Patrick in the first series was Patrick Marvel wasn't writing any of it and was just a, was one of the performers. And then he in the second series he wanted to write stuff, and it was almost like a little joke amongst the writers that he was coming in and doing substandard versions of everything right. we were doing. Right. Um, but then he said, "Let's why don't we go to Edinburgh and do a stand-up show, do a sketch show together, try and do this was the week of what, you know, try and do, mm. try and be that, yeah. um, you know, the, Peter, the Beyond the Fringe, let's try and be the 1990s Beyond the Fringe. So it was Steve Coogan, Patrick Marber, and me and Stu, and also Simon Munnery, who we all really liked. And we were going to write, but it became apparent that Patrick had asked us to do it so that we would write loads of funny stuff for them and and because of that imbalance, because we were the writers and they were the performers and they perceived us themselves as the performers of On The Air and us as the writers on the air, if we were trying to pitch stuff to be in it ourselves. And and it was that was a tough room to be. Yes, of course. When they're handing out the parts and go, yes. who wants to play this Steve Coogan or Richard Herring? You kind of go... Oh, yeah, well, I'd on, like yeah. to play. <laughs> but, yeah, Steve probably would do it better. Uh, so, you know, that was difficult. But it, 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 we had this, it, it, again, that was, I think, part of the problem. We had this very difficult Edinburgh together where that should have been an amazing show. Yes. Um, and nearly was. Sure. No, one, no one came to see it. It was the year Steve won the Perrier with his other show that Patrick directed. Um, and, you know, we were getting no one come to see it and we were infighting and it was just sort of weird. And then but in the last week, a producer came, Peter Kessler came and said, oh, I love this. We'd love to put this on the telly. And suddenly Patrick was like 100% behind, you know. So Patrick had this, um, he, he was more ambitious or, or more brazenly ambitious than everyone else. I'm yes. sure we were all as ambitious, but he was just, you could see him, you could see it cogitating <laughs> and you could see where he was forming alliances. And it, so the, it was weird for us when, you know, in the end, Patrick ended up owning 50% of Alan Partridge. And, right. 100% of some of Steve's characters. I think Steve felt in awe of this, slightly yes. in awe of this Oxbridge thing and and didn't realise that he, in many ways, was the genius behind all of what he does. Of course. And so he wanted these people to help him out and then was very generous, in fact, with the people who did go on to co-create the stuff in, in, in kind of giving them ownership. But not you. you but didn't. we, because we, you know, it was the wrong point. But, you yeah, know, clearly. But... Again, you know, I, I look at all the things, all those points in your career where you go, yeah, of course. what if I'd walked... You know, I could have walked yeah, away yeah. from Avalon and Stuart. I could yeah. have said, I wanted to do it, and I didn't agree. I sort of, I, I said, it's more important we're in it. And they, my manager and Stu said, no, no, it's more important we own the characters. Oh, really? Is that right? And, and I could have walked away. I could have said, well, I'll leave. I'll stay with them. I'll stay with them, and goodbye, Avalon, goodbye, Did you, did, I mean, did you, did you have sort of... 
sleepless nights over. I thought it. about it, but I, you know, I kind of, re- you know, I had loyalty to you, but I also thought we had something interesting together. Right. But had we gone on to write on the hour, you know, Peter Bainham took our place, who's a friend of ours and who I'm interviewing tonight, yeah. and. Uh, <laughs> He, you know, when they had a photo of the cast, there wasn't Peter Bainham in the end typing. You know, he wasn't. Yeah. He's gone on to get lots of stuff out of having done that so job. He got on on but screen as well, didn't he? He did a little bit, but not, you know, but hardly. So it's, you know, I think if we'd been the writers, and it might, it would have been a different life, and it may have yeah. been a wonderful life. But um, I would have been, I would have been writing. For yeah. some incarnation of Alan Partridge, or you know, sure. it would have been interesting, and it would have been. But you had lucrative. that thing inside you that wanted to. I just perform. think, it, yeah, because Robert Webb spoke to us about this, and and they got to sort of nearly thirty, hmm. and the writing was paying the mortgage, and they were making yeah. their way. But he said that was the point at which I began to wonder whether the performing would ever happen. Yeah, and if it hadn't happened. You know, like you just said, I yeah. could still have had a perfectly fulfilling, exactly. and successful career, but it wouldn't have been this career. Well, it just there's so you know, the, the older you get, and the more you look at stuff, you become so much more philosophical about yes, everything, and do. like, and you just go, "Hey, well, I'm glad this happened because it led to this." Yeah, and I, this wouldn't have happened. You know, you wouldn't be with, I wouldn't have the children I have, and I wouldn't have the no, wife I have, no, I know, all I those know, things. So you're glad about the, all all of that part, but also, I I wouldn't be having the career I have now, and I wouldn't have wanted the career I have now. If I'd been given the toss-up, even probably 20 years or 15 years ago, they said, do you want to be uh, David Mitchell or do you want to be a bloke making his own stuff on the yes. internet? I'd have said, I want to be David Mitchell, please. <laughs> uh, but now I would rather be me. Yes, of course. So it's And, and that, that's sort of interesting. It's so, weird how much you put on stuff, isn't it, when you're young? That yeah. idea that I used to do this thing where um, I, I, I'd look at women getting jobs and I'd be jealous. Right. And now I sort of look back and think, Hey, you were never going to get a job if they were looking for it. The Sky did a thing once where they'd just done the 3am girls in the Daily Mirror and yeah. they said, we want to do a news version of that. Do you know any women? And I said, well, yeah, but can I try out for it? And this is mid-twenties. It's a tough period, isn't yeah, it? And you kind of, also, I think you feel that if it doesn't happen now, it might never happen. Yeah, yeah. So you'd got over that hump. You were actually weighing up different options. You yeah. weren't thinking, if this doesn't, I'm back measuring inside legs on Regent Street by the end of next week, which would have been my right. thing. And you do, as you, as you get older, you do begin to look over things. You think, what were you thinking? Of? Yeah, well, you know, you're driven and, you know, I'm sure, we were, we, like, like I say, we were all ambitious really in that of way course. that Patrick was and that we mocked him probably for yeah. the time. And we, but we were all, it was only, here, you know, it was more apparent with him. And, uh, you know, and there, there are those moments and, and some of them are betrayals and some of them aren't. They feel yeah. like betrayals. And but it's actually, all part of the you know, journey. Someone's been given an opportunity and, you know, they have to make a choice. So what was the first thing that kicked off after you'd walked away from On The Hour? Would it have been... Um would it have been Fist of Fun? I mean, sort it? of. So we were, all this time we were also working up... Uh, so On The Hour, we'd started working on... Uh, a ratio called uh, Lionel Nimrod's Inexplicable World and I think we've done a couple of other bits and pieces as well so the little things coming up so yeah the, our own little radio uh, career was going okay and so we did Fist of Fun for Radio 1 people yeah so we did Fist we did I'm trying to think yeah Fist we did Lionel Nimrod and it was Radio 4 and then Radio 1 played put Bits. some of them on okay. late night uh, and then Radio 1 suddenly decided they wanted to do late night comedy and so again incredibly lucky to be in that position uh, Chris Morris did the show Armando did a show uh, the Ginger Prince do you remember the Ginger Prince I can't remember what they were called now but some of them, there was another sort of <laughs> trendy slightly comedy show uh, and um, uh, we when we did first of all Fist of Fun which was like a tour show doing sketches around universities and then the Lee and Herring show which was like a studio-based DJ show, but we did we cut to sketches, but yeah. we also took calls, and you know it was live. So just incredibly fortunate again to de- and again to de- get several hours of this. Quite radio exposed show. though, if you if you muff up that kind of, I mean, live is, is yeah. Quite... I mean, I don't think we ever really thought. I mean, we did make mistakes. I remember one time that I I had the ha- headphones on wrong, and I was looking at the <laughs> clock, uh, and I didn't know that the I thought the producer's voice came in either headphone. No one had told, so I had one headphone on. I think and I was looking at the clock, and the second hand was coming out, and no one seemed to be going. You know, and I was going and now we must go over to Manchester for Mark Radcliffe and everyone else was looking at me going what are you doing and then and yeah. then the cut and I said no we've got to go we've got to and I couldn't understand why they hadn't cut and then I the producer had been saying there's right. another minute you've got the you know you've misread the clock and so there was just this awful eggy and I was and I was very self-conscious I was very embarrassed and I kind of stormed off in a huff because I couldn't stand the embarrassment <laughs> of, because it had been you know I was going I didn't know that you know I thought it came out both ears the producer's <laughs> voice and she was going everyone knows it only comes out one ear which he didn't know uh, and <laughs> so you know but those moments are funny but yeah we I think we there's that mixture I was so self-conscious and scared but also just had so that's that, the that first overwhelming time you've mentioned confidence that. Every, the impression we're just over halfway and that's the first 
sign of vulnerability that you've yeah. even shown. I mean, and it's odd that because well, I was very insecure because of this whole. I mean, you a kept lot, doing lot. things. Like, this is the weird mixture between yeah. the, the, the the look at me gene and the insecurity, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Because you you kind of keep doing things that expose you to possible humiliation yeah. on quite a large stage. Yeah. I mean, that's comedy, though. I mean, that is, is the, that's it? the irony of the stand-up comedian. Yes. You know? And some of them aren't. Some, some stand-up comedians are the same on and off stage. But mostly there's a lot of, you know, nobody's quite that heightened. And if they are that heightened off stage, then you don't want to hang around with them. But, yeah, there's a massive insecurity. And there has to be, because if you, I, I don't know, there are different types of comedians. Because I was talking about this as well. There's very confident comedians. Yeah. And they're often either the, the absolute best or the absolute worst. Yes. So yes. the absolute worst open spots just believe they are the best. They go on, they die, they believe they've done they amazingly well. They're the best. They still, after, oh, but they don't even dying. notice they've died. Yeah. Um, it's almost enviable, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it sort of is. But it's, and I would, I mean, Stu had it to an so I would watch Stu and he'd come off and go, I was the best on tonight, I went the best. And you kind of go, objectively, you were the best, but you weren't the, the audience yeah. didn't think you were. Top three. Uh, <laughs> Top three. <laughs> and, you know, but he believed it and that was enough to push you, push you yeah. on. And he was very good. Uh, but equally, you know, someone will go on and 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 I, I was I was I would always beat myself up about mistakes, right. and, and Stu would always beat me up about my mistakes as well, but not and his not, own. not his own. Uh, he'd always apologise for me and never for himself. So it was it was that kind of big brother, yeah, yeah, yeah. big brother, little brother relationship. And he didn't have siblings, and I think he kind of didn't, you know, quite get how that worked. Give um, and take, compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 50, 50. Uh, And. Uh, so yeah, so it, it it I was you know I think I've been really shaken. I think if I hadn't had that experience in Edinburgh, I was about to I say would, that I don't think I'd have been as shaken as I was. But I was really sh I was very confident and doing lots of plays and lots of acting at university, and then that got taken out of me. I was doing that dumb show thing with Patrick Marby, who was telling me I couldn't act, and so I was all the time losing this confidence. Yeah. But then yeah, still managing to go on and do things. Lost yourself down, yeah, and get, just get and push and yourself. It. But I. I you know, Stu, Stu was doing loads of stand-up and was telling him when we were doing the double act, he was going, look, I've done all this stand-up, you don't know what you're doing, I've done this much more. And I had to go to him, I've done exactly as much being in a double act as you have, yes, so I exactly. know exactly as it's much. An, it's a very different dynamic, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a completely different yeah. thing. So... Then it was this morning with Richard, not Judy, was it? Or yeah, we did. We did fist of fun on. We did the fist of fun on the radio. Then we did fist of fun on the TV with two series. So we had yeah. one. We had a, a series where. We, so you're famous now, are you, Richard? Well, um, no. Of... I mean, it's it was it never really. Um, it never took off in that way. With it never took off in that Newman and Medea way. Right. Um, we would tour and eighty people might come. So we'd be in a big theatre, but eighty people would come and see Seriously? us. Seriously. Yeah, and occasionally it'd be a couple hundred, and once it was eight hundred cases right. in Brighton. To make sorry towards the probably towards the end of the you know, stuff. Uh, so you know, we it didn't. I think a lot of people were watching it, but a lot of them, the ones who liked it, were probably thirteen and not able to come out. <laughs> So, which I think, but that was me. That was me at thirteen. I was, you know, I wouldn't have been able to go and see Monty Python, even if they'd gone to Western Superman. No, of I wouldn't, course wouldn't have, not. Wouldn't have been allowed to go. So it's. Um, Were you lonely at this time? I, mean, I was. Yeah, I was. I, I was because I was just. I found it difficult to cope with, and I and I and I um, I wasn't great at. Foisting, I was always worried about foisting yourself on other people. Yes. So I'd spend a lot of time just at my in my own on my yeah. in my flat, uh, and I did. We had friends, and we did have a, an amazing time, and sure. there was gr great stuff going on. But there was a lot of time on a Friday and Saturday where I'd go, "Oh God, I haven't arranged to do anything, and it's too late to ring anyone now because yeah. they'll all have arranged everything." Yeah. And I think that's where, and everyone was probably the same, or men, many people were the same. Yes. It was before the internet where you could have gone, "Oh, you, you know, you tweet." Yeah, it was a bit of a production yeah. to get stuff. Together. So you know, you you could have just seen someone else on twitter and gone oh yeah. yeah do you want to have a drink uh but um but yeah so it's it was I, it was difficult because it was we were working very intensely and so i think me and Stu were friends and then we were just in each other's pockets so you 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 know we would go out drinking for a bit and then sure. just wanted to get away from yes, each other course. um and uh but then we would mainly the main people that each other knew but then he was doing stand-up and knew more comedians and stuff was so, that yeah. gap getting bigger then were you more and more conscious of the fact that he had two Careers and you only had one. Um, a little bit, and I just you know I think he you know he had he never really had he had a little bit more disdain for our stuff I think you know because he hadn't written it all he was had that kind of confidence that okay. that in himself so some of my things he didn't like generally if we didn't both like something we wouldn't do it mm. um, and so we you know he would do it in his own thing or right. you know I'd save it up for something else yes. uh, but you know I was do I was doing more of the legwork in the writing I was doing all the editing of all the radio stuff I was you know script editing it I was I can't I, I can't work out how much of you is is front of house and how much of you is back. 
stage right in percentage terms i can't work out how much of you is front and center and how much of you is writing it and putting it well, together like, and helping know, other people i think like with with leon herring because he was he had he had well, I, mean, Leon, I mean just you I mean, well, how, how much of you is i mean is the performer and how oh, much it, of I you think is increased, the craftsman increasingly um well, it's difficult to yeah. say. And it's changed things. in the yeah, course yeah. of your career, hasn't yeah. it? You've, I mean, you've... increasingly, I'm more myself on stage. That's a different thing. But it's thing. taken a long time. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, you know, and that's why I'm lucky. Yes. No, most people don't, you know, most people don't get the opportunity to do 13 one-man shows no. well, without, without either being coming really successful or uh, being told to yes, go away. Yes, of course. So, no, because so, you so, need that weird apprenticeship yeah, with yeah. lots of different so strands. Thought, and... you know, so I've got very, very good at doing stand-up, but I'm not really on anyone's... Ray, you know the people. Who, luckily, people know I'm there and they'll come and see me. And I'm all, you know, I'm still amazed if 250 people come see me in a little town. Yeah. I'm going, where the hell have these people come from? What, where do they know me from? And why they keep coming back? You know, because you still don't believe in yourself that much. But it's when you think actually, you know, there's 500 people in here tonight. There's 100 people and in here tonight. And they've had a good time. You know, they've had a nice time and they've come back. Yes. So that's, that's a all big. You need. It's a big thing to sure. to give up a night to give up yeah. you know 30, 40 quid. Yeah. Uh, and especially as a parent, you suddenly realise you, those precious absolutely. nights off. Yes, if you've made that decision to go and see someone, a it makes me think I've got to give them a, an amazing time. Which ten years ago, sometimes I think I'm going to deliberately annoy them tonight and make them uncomfortable. I wouldn't do that now because I think, look, Christ, this might be your one night a month where you're having a nice time with yeah. your partner. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, I just, want you to have a really good time. Just, so, so uh, you know, you really appreciate that. So when you um, went your separate ways, that was that a kind of conscious? Was it like a divorce? It was well. It was it was foisted on us because we were doing. You know, if they'd given us another series, we would have done another series. Right. I'm, I'm not sure we'd have done many more series. Uh, but they've been double acts that that's yeah. happened to. They've had that break, and they were about to stop working with each other, and then they're forced to work together yeah. for a yeah, long, no, long time. Like you know, and then they're very successful, and sure. and then, and I'm glad it didn't happen to us. Really, I'm genuinely, I'm glad we had that time together. I, it, it was, it may, you know, mainly I look back and with happy memories. There's bad things in there, um, and weirdly i think with this morning if you watch them the first one people are just flabbergasted by yes. it's almost silent yes. the last one is just Very like the everyone gets it and we're just getting to the point where newspapers start and go hey there's this amazing show. it was such a weird thing you know i wanted to do this slot i loved saturday morning tv yeah. like tis was and the banana splits and all this yeah. stuff i want that kind of and i want it was my idea to do this slot uh, of Sunday live on Sunday lunchtime we did it live because we'd hated all the effort we had to do with Fist of Fun where it took four hours to record edit 30 minutes well just redo it redo it redo it and you thought again, well let's do, do it again. Stu wasn't keen, that keen on doing it live but I really wanted to do it live very very different uh, forces aren't they yeah, completely yeah. different yeah, yeah. and, and it just meant we'd done it and it was great you know And but it was it was this amazing thing, but it was on at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And, and then the repeat kept on getting moved around, so people weren't really able to get into it. But people had got into it. And again, it was the regime change. The new controller came in and she stayed for a long time and she didn't get it at all and didn't yeah. like us at all. So that was it. So, so we this were, is kind so, of turn of the century. Though. Yeah, it we're was looking... 99. So 99 is when we finished the, the, you know, the last series of this morning, the second series of this morning. And we kind of knew it was they weren't going to do another one. They were, We'd been from meetings with the John John Plan was the executive producer who was would tried to be supportive yeah. they let they let us they let us get, do whatever we wanted and John Plan said we, I remember coming and said there's something they wanted us to cut and we said we wouldn't cut it and which is amazing right that's yeah. the executive producer yeah, yeah. and he said it'll be much better for you in terms of getting another series if you cut this yeah and we said we're not going to cut it right but I know that if we'd cut it we still wouldn't have got another series yeah. so it was that kind of we were that pig-headed but also behind what we were doing but also how the hell were yes, we able course. to tell executive producer that we were going <laughs> to no, do the no. thing and it went out yeah we did it we I mean, there was lots of edgy stuff on that show and we pushed it and you tasted different types of milk yeah milk I mean, animals and we you know I was just safe. to give people a flavour if they weren't yeah. familiar with well, there it was all, and, uh, there was a lot of stuff about me having sex with animals yes they're all like went, howling monkeys by the time milk. I finished with them. You know, there was things about there was a mouse escaped and went up my bum basically when it's up my mouse hole. Like we said, someone said twat live on TV. Yeah. I used to we used to sing this king song uh, when we'd crown someone in the audience as the king, and I we'd go far 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 far, and I'd be going far 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 king far 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 king live on TV, and every do it wow 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 wang king wang, and I was doing this every week. Uh, and so you know we were doing we were being very naughty and no one was looking out for it because it was on it, at a time no one was expecting 
something this weird. Be it was so, one of those things that could have become part of the furniture. Yeah, yeah. It? So it, I think if we'd done another series... It might have changed. It. Also, if we'd been a little bit more... We had so many ideas and so many characters that we didn't do that thing of repeating the same yeah, characters yeah, yeah. every week. A little bit more in uh, this morning because we had yeah. to because we didn't have enough money. Sure. Um, weirdly, there was a great character that uh, Kevin Eldon did that we'd all worked on together, which is this false guy pretending to be Rod Hull that had been in Fist of Fun. He's got the false Rod Hull and for some reason he pretended to be Rod Hull to get jelly. It was a very long synthesis where it came up, but he was really funny. And we, we recorded like loads of sketches of him for this this morning. And I thought this this is going to be the time this breaks through and becomes like a national obsession. Yeah. Yeah. And we were sitting on the set ready to record the first one doing the dress rehearsal. Someone came and said, um, it's bad news. Rod, Rod Hull has fallen off, fallen off his roof, hasn't he? <laughs> so we obviously had to not... I mean, it's probably worse for Rod Hull than it was for <laughs> But we but we obviously had to not You wouldn't do, have put that in a script. No. You'd have been handed it back for being too important. Exactly. Well, it would have been a perfect one of this because in the sketch every week the Rod Hull character died because he was unable to so uh, there was little bits of bad luck like that but also you know we were too inventive we were, tr- we were trying too many different things if we'd done another series who knows what would have happened like and I'm really glad we didn't because it gave us both a chance to break up well break up without, without falling out um, but go off did- and do our own thing and, and also rediscover who we were and we both went through a little bit of a wilderness well I'm more I mean obviously I'm interested in your wilderness at the moment because some of the stuff that occurred during it you nearly killed yourself writing for Al Murray yeah (laughs) Um, 10 episodes in 9 weeks Uh, well collaboration obviously well it was it was sort of was but it was actually a 20 the first series was 23 22 I think yeah 22 but we, it was 13 to begin, and they gave us another nine halfway through the series. Ah, so you so I to... wrote nine episodes in 10 weeks on my own because Al was recording them as of we course. were doing. So I was writing an episode a week. Uh, I was going in. We'd, the rec- <laughs> we'd They recorded them on a Thursday. Um, I would be right. I'd be starting writing a new script on Wednesday. So I'd, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'd write a script. We'd read it on Friday. I'd go over the weekend, rewrite it. On Monday, we'd have to nail it down. Yeah. Uh, Monday and Tuesday, and they'd rehearse is, it. And this is high octane. Yeah. This is burnout stuff, Yeah, yeah. Isn't Monday it? and Tuesday, they'd rehearse it. Jesus. I'd be there on Tuesday to help them with the rehearsal. Then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'd start writing the next one. They'd, be, they'd record on Thursday. And how, uh, how and, were you rational? Because we're going to run out of time and we're not, we're not close to <laughs> 2018 yet. Okay. But how, how did you deal then with no longer being... On the stage, were you cool with that? I was all right. I, I was I had a little part in the first series, yes, and it I was remember. and it was sorted. But it was you know it was only just a bit of fun. And sure. then actually, in the last episode of that, I, I wanted this. There was this thing where, and it was a little bit of an in joke as well. Although I was actually going out with Julia Suarez at the time, but in, my, in Fist of Fun, Julia Suarez had been my like fantasy pretend, my fantasy woman. I, I dream of a and woman so, with, with and, the head of Julia Suarez <laughs> and the body of Julia exactly. Suarez. It's a very good line. <laughs> and so in uh, we started going out with each other for very, you know uh, as things like went, and that's partly why she was in that show. Sure. And so I had the I was a postman character who yeah. was obsessed with her and she wasn't she hated him. Right. And in the final episode I wanted them to her to kiss him just for some spurious reason. She was trying to make someone jealous or something and you know, he, he exploded his world. And then the director said, you know, we've got too much stuff in this episode. And so I had to make the mature decision of, of cutting course. this Step this away. arc for this character. And so I didn't have him. And hey, Julia wasn't in the next series and we broke up, and which was the reason yeah. we went in the next series. Uh, and um, So it yeah, wasn't, so, you, what, you weren't gnashing your teeth and tearing No, no, I didn't mind. I was sort of, well, A, it was, I always wanted to write stuff as well. So yes. I'd love to be doing, I'd love to get, you know, that was what, I had 35 episodes of a sitcom on, I mean, it was on Sky, but yeah, it was yeah, on yeah. TV. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and we got paid a Proper ridiculous money. amount of money for it because yes. it was do- I was basically doing six years work in wait, wait, two years just, you know? just backing up slightly then at what point would you say you became financially secure in- only then I mean by the right. end of Lee and Herring we'd broken even I would say that was so, all so, yeah, so like even when- that's when we when I bought my flat we got I think we got paid thirty thousand pounds each a series of for writing yeah. and being in in those sh- those shows you know which is nice sure. it was a lot of money for me then but of was course. not like a life changing amount no. of money and so like you know we were you're paying rent for it, most of it, and then I put yeah, that yeah. ten grand deposit down on the ninety grand flat. Sorry, people of oh, the amazing. people of now. So, don't worry, uh, about them. they're <laughs> spending all their money on avocado <laughs> toast. <laughs> and you know, and so, but by the end of it, I was ba- I basically had zero pounds, but okay. I was living in a flat. And then I did that Dal Murray thing, and and, that and was a bad you know, cut. but it, but we would you know we got we got proper money. I got I was me and Al split the production fee. Right. So it was like you know each week, and when I was writing an episode a week. That became my weekly wage. Yes, of course. And then there was loads of uh, repeat fees for that, which never happened to me. So that completely set me up. Okay. Um, you know. And then 
I didn't know this, script editor on the third series of Little Britain, which sounds as if it was the opposite of doing the Al Murray thing. Yeah, well, in it was. In terms of effort. And, yeah, exactly. Because they did it all themselves. Matt's, they did. Matt's done unfiltered. And yeah, well, it was, there was, it was no, there was no, nothing I could to do. to get a word in edgeways. Yeah, well, it was, you know, if you liked it, it's not my, because of me. If you didn't like it, it's not because of me. <laughs> yeah, so I went, I went into meetings and um, I would, I wrote, I wrote one character which they didn't use. And I, you know, but it was basically just going in and try. They, but weirdly, that was another thing that made me realise podcasting was the way forward. Right, because they were going into meetings and people at the BBC were saying, "No, you can't do that." Yes, and you're going, "This is the third series of this incredibly popular show." And they the BBC be able said, to do whatever the hell. And they I just want. said to them, "Why would you not? Why would yeah. you go to the BBC, yeah. make it yourself, and then sell it back to the BBC? You know, and and sell it to everyone. It could be yours. You don't need the BBC. It's brooms, isn't it? It's people need to make their presence felt. Management yeah, and yeah. commissioning people. The, the, well, the most also, confident are the ones who won't touch it. Yeah. Else feels they need to leave a fingerprint on they, it. But they or, boys were the boys were pushing things like too far. I mean, I think they, right. I think they even the stuff that got on there. I think they, you know, now you look back at it and yes. go, that well, was that do. was. Yeah, well, he does at least. Matt yeah. Lucas does. I haven't spoken to uh, And you know, it was, but so it was sort of it was difficult to stop them doing things. It was, uh, you know, and so yeah, there was there was no there was no job to it at all. So it wasn't really. So then, I mean, fast forwarding violently, <laughs> you, you then did the, the series of one man shows, twelve or thirteen one man shows, themed uh, twelve tasks of. Hercules Terrace, dating 50 women in 50 days. So the idea comes and then you work out... Well, that should have been the show, you know, weirdly. So I had an idea of doing... I was living in a house which had a bust of Hercules on it. I was going through a bit of a a depression. I'd broken up with someone. I was probably depressed. It's a nice show. It was the least... uh, It was my least favourite at the time and it did the worst. Right. But uh, because the problem was I was trying to... I, I did a show which was an hour-long show in Edinburgh where I tried to describe 12 incredible things. I'd done one of which was Dating 50 Women in 50 Days, which yeah. is a show. Yes. Um, and so I was emulating Hercules in various of his tasks. Hercules had been <laughs> pregnated 50 women in a night, so I did, it, I did it slightly differently. And I don't think I impregnated anyone. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I just I set myself a series of challenge, challenges. And it's a nice show because it's about someone going into a depression, being a bit crazy, and then finishing all this stuff and and coming out the other side when I redid them all I did all 12 shows quite recently and it was a really lovely one to do because it just felt like it just felt like oh god that was like a real proper journey like personally and I was doing crazy stuff um, and you're putting an arm around your younger self slightly yeah yeah well by doing all those old shows yeah it was but you know so I was 34 yeah about 34 at that time it was an amazing it, it, it was very, very important show in in me becoming who I am. It right. gave me a. It gave me. The, yes, I did loads I of things. It gave me lots of confidence. I ended that show, and I'd done three one man shows by that point. But I went, why am I not doing stand up? Why am I not going to clubs and doing stand up? So I'd done all these things that challenged me, and I thought, you know, I'm doing stand up, but I'm not calling it stand up. And why am I not? And so that yeah, okay. was what that's what pushed me back into going into the clubs and, and, and that pushing leads, myself. That leads to, to to the show that you're touring at the moment, but, yeah. but via also. Um, Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, yeah. which was a real game changer. Yeah, it? yeah. So all of these things, you know, I think that again, those decisions. I, mean, I met my wife ten years ago when I started podcasting ten years ago. Yeah, and both those decisions have like completely, obviously, changed my life in lots of ways. Uh, but yeah, the podcasting thing. Yeah, I'd been obviously doing. I've been doing the podcast with Andrew Collins, and then we'd kind of come to the end of that, and we'd not fallen out, but we'd had a disagreement. And I kind of liked doing it. And I thought, would it be possible just to do that show with a different person yeah. every week? Was was really the beginning part thought of it. And then it's turned into much more of an interview show. Yes. Uh, do you but, like asking the questions more than answering them? Um, I don't. I like. I like both. And I yeah. like what I like about the, my podcast is I'm, a, you know, I'm allowed to sit back and let the other person talk. Or uh, my favourite ones are when we just start riffing yeah. with someone and you know it's nothing about anything, and we both find something funny and off you go. But I also am, am fascinated by. Other, I'm fascinated by comedy and other mm. comedians still. And I love other comedians. I love the young comedians. I love the old comedians. So it's all really interesting to me. So I'm interested to find out about them and how they got where they It's given me a lot more respect for... I think, again, when we started, we just thought, you know, as much as I was insecure, we thought we knew everything about comedy and we thought everyone else was terrible. Yeah. You sort of have to. You have to believe that you're... Just because doing it's some, such a big push yeah, yeah. to stand up and yeah. go, I'm the well, business. Just to keep going, you have yes, to sort course. of have this idea. And so you'd be disparaging about everyone. other everyone. And then you meet them, and then you, and, you know, and then you meet the people who are really successful. Yeah. And I've had really great guests on this, as you yeah, clearly yeah. have on here. And you suddenly go, oh, I mean, most of them are really nice people yeah. still, and down to earth people. But they've all worked hard, and they've all, you know, and they're all incredibly talented. And you sort, and it, it's sort of fair it, it, as as much as some great people aren't going to get to that point. 
all the great people who've got there, you've sort of got to be pretty great to get there. So you, you see these people and you realize how, yeah. you know, someone, again, someone like David Mitchell, just sure. so witty and so sharp and so clever. And he's brilliant on my podcast because he treats me in exactly the right way with this sort of disdain, but like he <laughs> treats me like an intelligent 10 year old, you know. <laughs> and it's that's good. That's how it should be. But yeah, so it's so I've, I've, I love doing it and it's it's always, it's different every week and it's even those elements of it are the same and it's it's always nearly always fun sometimes it's you know it's difficult we're improvising i do two in a night we're yes. improvising two in a night is tough yeah. and, and a live audience means that sometimes you don't know whether it's i mean you get an immediate feedback yeah. on whether it's as funny as you think it yeah, is yeah. or whether it's as magical but sometimes like last week i didn't the, the audience were quite quiet right. and you know maybe it was and i was a bit ill and i was I had mackenzie crook on i really yeah. wanted to impress yeah, him yeah, and of course you know and then you kind of just not you feel like oh, I wasn't quite as good as I could have been. Yeah, but mostly I'm just wrong really... though, can't you? Sometimes yeah. when and you, you are, think yeah. you've not got it right, you nearly can, always come off. And people... You have got it right, yeah. Uh, which leads inexorably towards Oh Frig, I'm fifty. Yes, so which... I did a show called Oh Fuck, I'm forty. Yes, ten years ago, uh, where I was a very different man. It was just before I met my wife, and I was and, a, and another kind of midlife crisis show. <laughs> and, so uh, how long are you going to live? I kind of got my I got my midlife crisis. Out of... Well, I think the midlife is the middle bit, isn't yes, it? It's of not, it is. doesn't mean you have to get to eight. It's not an hour. <laughs> it will be in the end. We'll be able to locate the hour, but it it we'll let, we'll let the fulcrum. Take. But I was, you know, I was living a, a very different life than I am now, and it's kind of interesting. I thought it'd be nice to. It's a not, you know, it's a nice idea to have to do a show every decade. I don't know mm. how many more decades there will be. Uh, I, I joke about this being the penultimate instalment of the yes, uh, of the yes. franchise. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, but also, there's a big difference between me at me at forty, me and fifty, because obviously I was single. And, that, and that's single. what it's about. Those yeah, big so it's life about, changes, and it's about that. Whether at forty. I was really worried about um, whether I was too old to be childish, and right. like my my persona was so, you know, this this intellectual puerility is what yes. is what I've always done, and I, I think at forty I thought, oh god, now I might be too old. Now okay. it gets too embarrassing. Yeah. It's too weird, and that, you know, and also my life was I wasn't married and I didn't have kids, and had I blown everything out of the water, you know, by just you thought the ship had sailed. Well, yeah, in every way, you know, and yeah. and and was was should I grow up? Right. Uh, at 50, I'm, I've been forced to grow up in some ways, but I'm still childish. Yeah. And so it's still about that. But it's also, I think, about suddenly realising you get over a certain hump and then you're, it sort of becomes funnier to be childish as you get older as well. So all that's nice. But you've got a bit more wisdom at 50. So it's about looking back and about understanding. You know, you feel like you're in the middle of your life, even though you're in the last yes, of part of your you life. Uh, and, you know, you've got... It's that perspective. It's that perspective of my... You know my personal life and my career that I would didn't have ten years ago. Do the numbers resonate in real life? Because obviously forty and fifty in terms of birthday cards and parties and um, and, and and helpful headlines for shows. Yeah, they're, they're, they're big numbers. But I, I found forty six. I had forty six last month, and yeah. I found that much more troubling than either forty or forty five. Yeah. it's weird, isn't it? It it's, is weird. I mean, forty really hit me hard. Did it? And yeah, but I'm 50, waltz 50, through forty. I fifty doesn't. Fifty. I mean, I've got other stuff to worry about now. That's yeah, the thing. That's, I had nothing to worry about. <laughs> but like mid forties is mortality the though. Have you it taken is. mortality on board? Yeah, yeah, no, you sure, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with death. My wife, I've done a whole show about death. Of course, my, you have. Yes, my wife is. Uh, uh, I have to not talk because I keep on talking about dying all the time. Well, Eric Cantona when he was sit <laughs> when he was sitting in that chair, I asked him a similar question, and he paused for so long that I was worried that he <laughs> decided not to answer it, yeah. or and then just said he was he was going to find a way to overcome death. Oh God. If well, anyone, it could be. If anyone can. It's really weirdly, I think mid-40s is worse than anything. Yeah. Because I think, like, you're still at 40. I mean, that's the difference now. At 40, I was. I look back and I was I was quite fit and I sure. was handsome <laughs> and I was sexy <laughs> and uh, everything was working. There was no, 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 no feeling anything could go wrong. I was still, you know, young women were still finding me attractive. Yeah. It was, and, like, at 50, and then my life's very different and I'm not trying to be attractive to young women. I would like to be attractive <laughs> but to them, but, but I'm not. You know, I'm not. And so there's all these things you have to cope with and things start to go wrong. And it isn't until the mid-40s that that really starts to happen, I think. So as a man, was you're lucky in lots of ways, but then it hits you as hard. And I think we're not as prepared because you, you have this privileged lifestyle and that's, yes, of you know, and, and this entitlement and you don't realise and everyone does what you want and then suddenly you get 45, 46, 50 and people aren't so much bothered anymore. And so no. you've got to, you know, women aren't that bothered about you, work isn't that bothered about you. You have to kind of come to terms with those things and I think that's why, I mean, there's, there's a big subject but everything that's exploding at the moment is about these middle-aged boy men who suddenly haven't, haven't, haven't quite yeah, and then suddenly realise that they're not as powerful as they were so they exert, or they exert their powers in 
ways that are horrific. And that is why you are so relieved that you are in control of your own professional destiny. Yeah, it was not, you know, it's that autonomy is great. Also understanding, you know, what's important. It's just, you know, it's lovely to be on tour and I love doing the shows, but it's great to come home and see my kids. Got those gigs cancelled because of the snow and you think, oh, it's terrible. That's two days workout. But then I got back to, and I'm not stuck in a snowdrift. I'm with my family and it was hard, but they were, it was hard one of the days, but it's still, you know, it's, it, it's great to have that to work for and to go back to that. Um, but yeah, you know, having a perspective and you know, understanding your own unimportance, and that's all what the fifty shows about. Is, yes. is, is knowing in the grand scheme of things how just time will roll over you, and, dust, dust, and you're gone and dust from. to dust. Um, how, how can people see it? Uh, well, if you go to uh, if you go to richhone.com, you can see all the the gigs are up on there. I mean, I'm sort of it goes on till June, um, but it's I'm doing two. It's quite it's nicely paced. It's sort of two, yes. for me. It's like two or three a week, so. It's not too exhausting. Especially um, a man of your age. Yes. Well, it is. It's, it takes take a toll. It, it, it takes does, it out of you. It's hard, man. It's, I'm having a, I've got a four-month-old, five-month-old really? son at home. Yeah, They're so not it's, going on the road with you. Though, <laughs> they aren't, but it's still... The, tire, the tiredness never leaves you, so it's... Um, <laughs> but, yes, it's, 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 a, it's a fun show. I'm doing it in London on May the 4th, doing the DVD on May the 4th. Richard Harry, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Nice and I'm joined now for the traditional post-match analysis by the producer of Unfiltered, Rich Cooper. And um, he, he's, he's a talker, but I'll tell you what struck me from mm. an interviewer's point of view that made it a little bit challenging yeah. was the fact that he spent so much time thinking about his right. career. Not, not in a self-referential or an egotistical way, but last week, David Lammy mm-hmm. was the polar opposite. He, he sort of kept getting taken by surprise by things that I said to him about his own life. Yeah. And he'd sort of go... Oh, yeah. yeah I never, never thought really about it. <laughs> Whereas with Richard, because so much of his stage work depends on self-examination, yeah. it'd be very hard to say anything to him about him that he hadn't already said to himself. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we, looked, we had this a similar thing when David Baddiel was on, wasn't he? Like, it's sort of the comedian's job to look at yourself, to look at your life and put it all out there in a package form. Yes. Which means thinking about it and analysing it. And I don't know how they don't go crazy. No, no. Well, I think they, the I think they like do that. a bit, mate. To be honest with you, I think that's why you yeah. get the sort of mild allusions to depression and, and and things like that. I think that they walk a tightrope actually between that. Yeah, uh, those you're probably two right. That's, that's not the life for me. I liked him a lot. <laughs> it's not the life for me either. Luckily, I get to talk to them about them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, well, he was really nice. He was great. And um, uh, as you say, like this is another one where I can I can see people tweeting us going like, "Oh, we need to do a part two. Uh, yeah, Why wasn't this it. two hours so, long? Do you, do you have any idea how hard it is to sort of self-edit and censor oh. while you're doing it, <laughs> yeah. keeping an eye on the clock, trying to hit it on an hour, but also thinking, well, I don't want to move him on from this, or I don't want to move her on from that because this is this is really interesting. But it's great. Yeah, it means we can we can run until I'm fifty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. 